Welcome to Season 2 of the Sentac Podcast. The Society for Ear, Nose, and Throat Advancement in Children, Sentac, is a collective group of like-minded healthcare professionals involved in the care of children with hearing, breathing, speech, and swallowing disorders. We have an exciting lineup of guests and interviews for this season. We encourage you to subscribe so that you will not miss any of these upcoming shows. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Hi, welcome back to uh, our Sentag podcast today. Uh, today, I had the pleasure of having a co-host, Julian White, uh, who's a member of the communications committee member uh, C- communications committee with me. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me join. Um, so I'm Julian Smith. Um, I'm a professor at Southern Connecticut State University. And then I also work in the NICU PICU as an SLP at Yale New Haven Hospital. So I'm really excited to, to talk about this topic. Uh, and today we're having Hi. a great conversation about cardiac babies and feeding. And we have uh, three uh, guests with us today. Uh, we have Kimberly Morris from Radiant Children's, Haley Klassen, did I say that right, Hallie. Haley? Hallie, Hallie. Klassen. Uh, from Texas Children's, uh, and Janan, uh, I'm going to let you say your last name, Janan, uh, from Dell Children's. Janan Sphere. Sphere. Yeah, like the circle. <laughs> Excellent. Um, actually, why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves? So, hello, uh, I'm Janan Sphere. I'm the primary speech pathologist in our cardiac care unit at Dell Children's Hospital. Um, Our cardiac care unit is actually a joint venture between the University of Texas um, as well as Dell Children. So its full title is the Texas Center for Pediatric and Congenital Heart Disease. It's quite the mouthful. I know. So I just say Dell Children's. (laughs) But it is, is, you know, a little bit of branding for you guys. (laughs) Excellent. And Hallie, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Sure. Um, I'm Hallie Clayson. I'm currently at Texas Children's Hospital. I just transitioned to um, a level three NICU with Texas Children's Hospital um, at Methodist Willowbrook, Um, but I was previously the lead SLP in um, our heart center, which consists of three ICU floors and two step-down floors. Awesome. And then Kimberly, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself? Yeah, sure. So I'm Kimberly Morris, and I work at Rady Children's Hospital here in San Diego. And I am I lead the cardiac and air digestive feeding and swallowing programs here. I work both in the acute care setting, and I also work a little bit in our outpatient setting where I help with the single ventricle program, our home monitoring program. Julian and I are going to take turns uh, kind of asking questions to our uh, guests. Uh, I'm going to start with the first one. Um, and, uh, I'll go ahead and put this question out there and you guys can just kind of, uh, you know, each one of you can answer and just kind of take it as you wish. Uh, first question is, do your hospitals have a standardized protocol based on the cardiac pathology, uh, for when SLP, for when an SLP gets consulted? I can go ahead and start. This is Kim from Rady Children's Hospital. So we do not have a specific protocol based on the physiology, We have a standard, we have a feeding and swallowing team where we have automatic orders for all of our patients admitted to the unit. And we then go through a screening based on speaking with the nurse. Um, Some we know that we're gonna have to go and do a feeding and swallowing evaluation, but we also take the approach of really trying to facilitate feeding from the beginning. So we see most of our babies, whether they're feeding well or not. 
And then we also, if a patient's going to be going through surgery, we also see them baseline. Even if they are doing really well, we want to know what that baseline feeding was just in case with they have a, if they have trouble after surgery, they say, hey, all of a sudden they're having trouble. We know what that, what that difference was. We can help them a little bit more. That's awesome that you get that even before the surgery. Do you also do instrumental before the surgery? We don't, no. I think that that's rare cases. Right. If we really know that there is a baseline swallowing impairment, if they're going to do airway surgery, um, anything related to their airway at the same time, which is usually not the case for our patients if they're admitted for any cardiac pathology. Sure. So it's that's generally after. Um, sometimes before they're admitted, some we're privileged to know some of them and we know, okay, hey, let's do a little bit of uh, workup before we admit. Let's do some of the instrumental so that we can have a better understanding post. So, but that's not usually just for the immediate admits. Great. Um, this is Janan. So ours, you know, our cardiac unit is relatively new. Um, we do some things pretty similar to it. They it looks like what they do at Rady. Um, we have a special delivery unit and we work very closely with our fetal cardiologists. So typically we are aware um, of any newborns that are uh, gonna be born with CHD um, and we will see them for their first feed. So that way we can kind of get a baseline. Um, as far as getting automatic orders. We don't typically do that, um, but it's, there's enough of a presence. I'm there pretty much full time. Um, and I'm also working, I also work closely with the fetal cardiologist. So since it's still kind of like a burgeoning unit, um, I wouldn't say I get automatic orders, but it's almost kind of expected that I will be getting orders once the patient is on the unit. Um, and so I'll try to get like a baseline assessment preoperatively and then post-op also go ahead and assess them. Um, and also kind of similar to, I think what Kim was saying was that we do try to keep tabs on patients, even if they are feeding pretty well, we just want to make sure that we're kind of on top of their feeding one. So we know, you know, what to look for in case there is an issue later on. And also just to make sure that we're kind of optimizing where they are with their feeding um, preoperatively. So that way, post-op, they have kind of a better chance at succeeding with feeding. This is Hallie with TCH. So our, um, ours is a little bit different than the both of those um, answers. We are not the only provider that does feeding at TCH. Um, our OTs also do feeding as well. So we are in the works of implementing an oral assessment pathway for patients that are at high risk for aspiration within our cardiac ICU um, and our step-down units. Um, so the inclusion, we have an inclusion group that includes those higher risk um, for dysphagia patients, including like single ventricle physiology, artwork, vascular rings, um, ECMO patients, um, any of those patients, we will push to get orders on. We don't have automatic orders, um, but the pathway really, outlines primarily, um, it's very voice heavy. So if there's any voice concerns post cardiac surgery, that's when speech typically gets an automatic consult or we get heavily involved 
Um, but we do a lot of self-advocating for our patients based off of their cardiac pathology and anything that we um, look at as a risk factor, such as genetics or any neurohistory. Yeah, that's awesome. You're focused on, on the vocal assessment. Um, <clears throat> I'm glad that that's part of what you're doing. So do you all um, at your different hospitals have a team? It sounds like, Hallie, you're definitely working with OT. Is there a specific team that includes other providers um, like ENT or anyone else um, for the cardiac swallow assessments? So this is Hallie with TCH. Ours is primarily us and OT. Um, we also work very closely with a nutrition task force that we have dietitian involvement. And um, we have several physicians that have split off into teams like our single ventricle team that we'll check in with or our um, our nutrition task force team has a physician that runs that team and our developmental care position. Um, so they all play into our feeding team, um, but it wouldn't be a specific like group of people. Yeah, that makes sense. That's just what I was wondering. What about um, the rest of y'all? So this is Kim from Rady. We, we do have a set team. It's mostly speech that does the feeding and swallowing from the beginning and throughout. Um, but we do have a whole developmental team with OT and physical therapy that's doing assessments. Physical therapy gets assessments from the beginning for most of our babies. And um, OT, it's based on needs of, of each patient. But if you take that on a broader scale, it's the entire CTICU and step-down teams, cardiology, or the intensivists, and we're involved in rounding with them in the mornings. We go, we have a weekly discharge rounds where all of the disciplines, OT, PT, speech, social work, nutrition, um, case managers are all involved to really assess what these patients are going to need from the very beginning, whether discharge is closer or far out. And there's just, I think that's the most important thing that helps our patients is just constant discussions and forums for those discussions. Awesome. And I also meant to ask, as you guys are, are saying these answers, would you mind sharing how many SLPs are specifically in your cardiac units? Yeah, sure, sure. So this is Kim again. We have um, three SLPs that are dedicated to the cardiac unit. And then we have about two PTs and about two OTs for the unit. And the other thing that I didn't mention is our we have a bridge of our outpatient air digestive program where we will consult specifically inpatient on the cardiac patients to give an air digestive approach with pulmonology, GI, ENT, and, um, and speech. So this is Janan from Dell. Um, <clears throat> so only SLP does the feeding on the cardiac unit. Um, right now we have a dedicated 1.5 SLPs, I would say. So it's really just me and someone else on the days that I'm either in clinic or if I'm out. Um, but we're expanding um, both like geographically with our unit. Um, so we're going to be doubling in size here soon. Um, and so we are also going to be adding on another SLP. So we're, you know, we do the feeding and then we, depending on voice assessment, we typically will get ENT involved. 
Um, and then kind of like Kim was saying from like a broader standpoint, we have a psychosocial team and we meet every morning. Um, so that's PT, speech, OT, child life, social work, case management, the charge nurse. Um, we round with our ICU step down, um, cardiac intensivist team twice a week. Um, and then we are also kind of constantly in communication with our or just our like our heart failure transplant and fetal cardiology team as well. Um, and so it's, it's just a very dynamic and, and fluid kind of movement of all these different team members working together. But as far as speeding goes, it really is just speech. Um, and then I have one of my colleagues who works in the NICU and once my patients kind of transfer over that way, she'll take over. Um, and then we'll see them outpatient in clinic, but it's still just speech feeding. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. Very cool. So, so as an ENT, help me kind of understand your guys' assessment. When you guys uh, are approaching a new patient, tell me what you're looking for in your chart review. And then tell me what you're looking for when you examine the patient and do your bedside assessment. That's a big question. Yeah, yeah. I, know. I was like, who wants to go first? Who wants to tackle that one? I'll, I'll <laughs> tackle it. <laughs> I can tackle. You got it, Hallie? Yeah, right. this, is, this is Hallie with TCH. Okay, so um, I am known as the queen of chart reviewing in <laughs> at TCH. Um, so just... when I'm looking at a chart, I'm looking at um, their current respiratory status, number one. I'm looking at their narcotics. I'm looking at um, past surgical history, past medical history, past intubations, past medications, past seizures, past neuro insults. I'm looking at um, how far out we are from potential surgery or how far we out are from previous surgery. Um, I'm looking at any genetic diagnoses, what their dog's name is, you name it. Like, <laughs> I delve into that chart because I, my, my theory is the more I know that patient going in, the more I'm going to be able to tailor my therapeutic approach with them. So really if cool. I know that that mom is going to be advocating for breastfeeding um, based on their history of the, the patient being an, uh, an active breastfeeder prior to surgery, I'm going to go back to that. I'm going to look at um, their current narcotic wean to see what I'm getting myself into when I get to the bedside. Um, and that can also help me with scheduling my um, assessment. Um, and then I'm also looking at things like fluid balance, all that good stuff. Um, my bedside assessments are pretty consistently the same. Um, when I go in at first, I take more of a conservative approach with my patients where I start bottom up. Um, I may start with looking at oral motor skills and tolerance to little tastes, um, progressing based off of what they look like from a cardio respiratory standpoint or hemodynamic standpoint, I might progress to a full bottle system. Um, all while I'm doing that, I'm doing a perceptual voice assessment. I'm keeping track of any developmental um, little indications that they might be behind knowing that cardiac babies are at risk for developmental delays. Um, and then I will do for my higher risk patients, more of a therapeutic feed where I may limit their volume from 15 to 20 mLs, um, and see how they do with that before I give them a full, like nutritive feed. Okay. This, 
might be too detailed for the ENT, <laughs> but I'm just curious. Do you have a standard like bottle nipple that you go to for these kids for your first trial? Mm-hmm. For my first trial, um, yes. Let me guess. <laughs> Dr. Brown's. We are Dr. Brown's Yes. This is Janan from Dell Children's. I just want to chime in here and say that my answer is probably going to sound exactly the same as Pally's because I trained at Texas Children's with her. So, okay. <laughs> so there, I, I can't add any more to this conversation except for the fact that I do the exact same thing, but at Dell, we are a little bit smaller still. So I work very closely with the PT and OT um, and that their assessments also really help to inform mine um, because they can really talk a little, talk about tone and talk about, um, positioning that they're kind of safe with for holding and things like that. So that also kind of helps to inform my assessment, but overall, for sure, when it comes to the feeding, I'm looking at the exact same thing as Hallie and doing it probably the exact same way. <laughs> so high five. Excellent. <laughs> and Kim, would you say you, you do anything different or you have anything else to add to that? Um, everything that you guys said, I completely agree with. I would say that as wonderful as it is to have automatic orders for all of the patients, it does give me a different approach with some of them. One of the first things that I'm looking at in the chart is what is the goal of the team? So why is that patient admitted? Are they admitted really for heart failure? Are they differentiating in differential diagnosis of is it heart failure or feeding dysfunction because of poor waking and just really trying to understand when I go in, one, who are the patients that I need to see first, right? And when I go into that room, what is my goal? What does the team need to know? And then what do I need to know to really help this this patient's course be what it needs to be and how I can be additive to that? And as far as going into the room and starting my assessment, very much the same thing. I'm looking at um, all of the things that you said. One of the biggest things is, are they a new or experienced feeder, depending on where they are in their, so whether it's surgical course or uh, how they're being monitored. Parent report of how their status has changed if they're being admitted just to be monitoring monitored is that are we looking at its developmental in nature and we're just monitoring them because they're worried about their their cardiac disease or are they like I said are they going into heart failure are we dealing with acyanotic or cyanotic defects just the different different physiology of when I walk in okay how aggressive can I be if we really are having poor weight gain And then when I'm at bedside, doing all of the things, watching the parent feed, if we're we're a new feeder, of course, starting conservatively. One of the things that we do at Rady, other than um, watching the patient feed, looking at physiologic stability, we also use what's called NEAR. So it's NEAR infrared spectroscopy. And so it gives insight to other than just the oxygen saturations, but it gives insight to their overall overall cardiac stability as well. And on our unit, it's one of the main things that's looked at um, that gives the physician's insight to how that patient's doing. So I'm paying attention to that. And really how are we, what is our goal by the end of the session and then over the entire hospital course. And then um, 
also parent interaction, right? Just like you were saying, how worried is that parent? How teachable is that parent? How do you meet them where they're at? I was going to add, Kim, I love that. This is Hallie with TCH. Um, the goal, I love that because that's so true with um, even our patients post-swallow study. I mean, I, I might be more liberal with my recommendations for a child that had a VSD repair versus my single ventricle patient. Or if I have a patient that has aspirated across the board, but I still want them to do some small volume practice, um, I'm talking to the heart failure team to say, okay, what's our goal towards the end? Are we super worried about being more liberal with this patient um, to get them to a heart transplant? Or are we um, able to have some wiggle room for providing some therapeutic feeds just to keep their skills up? So I love that, just keeping that goal in mind. Yeah. One of the first signs is, you know, is the patient escalating respiratory support? Were they on oxygen when they were at home? Or are they now on oxygen now, they're ad- now that they're admitted? And is feeding going to be helpful in that course <laughs> or not, right? I mean, it's, you could go both ways with that, depending on, on what the patient actually needs and how we're going to actually preserve their cardiac function in the right. midst of what, how they're, the team's trying to optimize that. Right. right. The goal weight gain, is it the goal to keep their skills maintained? Is the goal to get them full PO and discharge without a tube? Yeah. Yeah. I, this is Janan with Dell. <clears throat> I definitely agree with all of those sentiments. Um, and, you know, oftentimes we get so caught up in our, our single ventricle population, um, and so, you know, that's kind of where my first line of thinking goes. But yeah, I mean, absolutely, it depends completely on where the patient is. And I think um, I speak for most feeding therapists when I say that we really, you know, we want to find a way to marry the team's goal, the team's goals, probably <laughs> parent goals, and then what the child actually needs to meet them where they're at. Um, and so it can be kind of you know, a lot of trying to put all these puzzle pieces together, but yeah, it definitely depends on for, you know, what their cardiac diagnosis is and, you know, what they were doing prior to that admission. Sure. And I think just for the listeners too, we, it's so broad, just bedside assessment. If you break that up into whether they're having surgery or not, but if they are pre and post-op assessment, right, it's a whole, that's a whole new assessment and your goals are completely different. And a patient might be admitted for several months and then you have another assessment after they have surgery and where are they in their developmental level at that time? And what are you trying to preserve and how aggressive are you going to be if they're, you know, three, four months and about to lose their non-nutritive sucking abilities Uh and how, what role does that play in what your decision-making is? And I think another thing to note on top of that, Kim, is not only do our kids change from surgery to surgery, but day to day, I've had some yeah. kids Absolutely. hour by hour, they're a completely different child than they were the day before. Um, and so the great thing about being SLPs at these bedsides is a lot of times we're the ones that notice those little subtle changes with their feeds, yes. little subtle changes. Ooh, their nears dropped. Did you notice that? Exactly. Every single time they bottle feed their nears dropped just a tiny bit, but yeah. once they stopped feeding, it popped back up. What Makes is that about? Yeah. We can have those conversations with the team and they can make changes based off of what we're finding at the bedside. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We get to 
know them so well, you know, Mm -hmm. and we see them so often that it is, you know, essential for us to kind of be on top of that because it does change every single day. And especially if they're on a narcotic wean, then it changes every single hour. So, you know. Well, I hate to interrupt, but this is such a good conversation. Um, I do want to move us forward just a little bit. I'm going to skip the next question because we've talked about that. What is your bedside assessment and how does that change? Um, So let's switch a little bit to talking about instrumental. Um, So first of all, I'd love to hear um, again, I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but um, whether you, um, your facility and whether you personally prefer fees or MBS um, for these cardiac kiddos. And then also, do you take into consideration um, the fact that they're cardiac and change how you approach the fees or the MBS um, when you're doing your instrumental assessments? Sure, I can. This is Kim from Reedy. I can go ahead and start. Um, for on our unit, we we don't immediately use instrumental, even if it's a post-op patient. And it's a team discussion whether they're pre, pre-op, post-op, not going to get surgery, whatever it is. We really just look at the patient as a whole and what the what we think the etiology of that impairment is. Is it just they're not interested? Is it just progression of volume? And what does that patient look like as a whole? We have to consider if they've had cardiac surgery and what impairments might be there. But our patients, like we were just talking about in our assessments, they change so frequently. And although you can take a really conservative approach and say, okay, we need to make sure that this patient is safe, right? But we also have to optimize skill. And the the way that we look at at it is we need to optimize the timing of whatever instrumental assessment. Sorry, there's a, I'm still at the hospital. There's a helicopter going over as we speak. Sorry about that. Um, As we have to optimize the timing of that. And so a baby who's post-op and they're weaning respiratory support, even if they don't have great endurance and their coordination isn't the best, are they responsive to us being able to do strategies with sideline and a slower nipple and give them a few days to be able to practice, even if we think there could be some vocal cord involvement, right? And when a baby, we really, we really base our instrumental not off of what we think could be there, but what their systems are showing us. And so if we're not able to move that baby along and they're, they're telling us that they don't want to be moved along, we then say, why? Why, why is that the case? What is your hemodynamic stability? What is your entire physiologic stability? How do you cue when you're feeding? How responsive are you? Are you showing signs of aspiration? Are you coordinated and you're just stopping at a certain volume? If they're not responsive to different techniques that we are trying to implement, that's, and, or we have high concern of whether it's coughing or poor progression, um, really shutting down when we've given them a lot of chances, then we'll go ahead and we'll do an instrumental. We typically will do fees opposed to MBS. And that is more for the case of, yes, assessing their upper airway and, and being able to understand if physiology has changed, 
but also because they're changing so frequently, that's an easy thing to do bedside and we can do it, you know, usually not more than once when they're there, but we could if we needed to. And we've done it when a patient is weaning respiratory support and they have, there's still a little bit of sedation going on. And we've done it as they are getting ready to get out the door just to get another, another peak. So occasionally we'll do a modified barium, but it's, that's usually done more on the outpatient side, or if we need additive information to complement the fees. I, this is Tally with TCH. Ours is very similar to Rady's in the fact that we also try to optimize. We provide our patients with a chance to practice a little bit before we jump to any sort of um, swallow study or fees. Um, our biggest thing that we're looking at, similar to Rady's, is the, the respiratory wean and narcotic withdrawals, um, making sure that we can get them off of, the, off of as much sedatives as possible for to get a really good picture, um, keeping into consideration the fact that we do need to progress this patient along. And if they're showing us signs that they aren't able to progress or um, aren't responsive to those interventions, we jump on it a little bit sooner. Um, at our facility, we use modified barium swallow studies. Um, and if our patient doesn't do very well on those swallow studies um, and we notice a change clinically, we tend to repeat them in about two to three weeks after that initial swallow study. Um, our fees is utilized primarily outpatient by our fabulous swallow disorders clinic team. Um, we have a team of um, two SLPs and several ENTs that do swallow disorders clinic and see all of our cardiac and NICU patients outpatient uh, to do those repeat imaging and get the fees done and then send them on sw to swallow, uh, for swallow studies if needs be. It's so funny that the two institutions kind of do the opposite as far as outpatient inpatient. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, this is Janan from Dell. So there's definitely a conglomeration of using the framework of both hospitals um, because our cardiac unit is growing so much um, and we're still kind of on the forefront of like really building up the infant feeding portion of it. Since I have so much experience from Texas Children's, I tend to kind of just, like I said, go that route um, in terms of how I determine what, what type of instrumental we're going to do, when we're going to do it, but pretty much the same thing on both ends. I would just say for us, we don't do fees as often. Um, in our cardiac population, unless the, the infant is strictly breastfed. Um, otherwise we will typically just go for the modified. And there's, it's, it's not so much that there's not like a utility to fees or anything like that. It's more of the fact that logistically it just tends to be a little bit easier in terms of our staffing. Um, because once you go that route of doing fees, we have to have, we have to coordinate with ENT. There aren't as many um, fees trained SLPs at our facility. Um, and then I think historically, our, depending on who's on service, the medical team tends to get a little nervous with the fees. You know, scoping an infant and, and stressing them out can be um, a concern for their hemodynamic stability. So, it, you know, it's just one of those things. But, you know, my personal preference is if I could do fees more often, I would because you can do it at bedside. And that's so much easier than bringing all of these lines down to radiology. Um, but 
you know, there's definitely utility to both, but essentially we're, I'm looking at the same type of framework as both other organizations, um, but doing uh, modifieds instead. So that just led so perfectly into our next question, which is. <laughs> so, so Julian, let me, let me ask you this question first, because I think oh, your institution yeah. probably does it differently. T- tell us how you, so let me, let me yeah, frame this question first. So uh, some places will do um, like a team fees where they have ENT do the scope and SLP uh, will do the, the swallow. Um, and then there are some places, I think this is probably more recent or maybe more modern, uh, where there's more SLPs who are actually passing the scope themselves and doing the fees without ENT there. Uh, so tell us how you do it at your institution, Julian. Yeah, so we um, we do have a couple of people that are specifically trained to um, to pass the scope in in peds and infant. Um, so we do our own fees. We do typically have two SLPs present, so one SLP feeding and then one SLP passing the scope. Um, the people that are actually passing the scopes, the SLPs doing that, were trained directly by the pediatric ENTs. Um, so we do that under their um, their training as well. Yeah, interesting. And then how do we do it at uh, Radies, Kim? Uh, we have ENT that passes the scope and the feeding therapist will be the one that is usually feeding the baby. We sometimes will have parents involved, but most of the time we're the ones feeding. Have you guys ever talked about taking the job over of passing the scope and doing it yourselves? Absolutely. Yep. And we, um, it's more policy <laughs> um, driven. And so we just need to put in the time and change that and um, because we have several of us have passed at other institutions and it is logist just like you were saying it's it can be a, a logistical nightmare sometimes trying to get both of us up there but at least for the in the CTICU I really like having two of us and I think the, the cardiac team likes having ENT and myself both there um, with some of our more fragile babies but for some of them that are more stable and that we we definitely think that speech could just be the one that does it, um, and especially outpatient. All right. So in that same vein of our instrumental assessments, what information are you getting from the fees um, versus the MBS? Um, is there different information that you get between those two tests? Sure. I this is Kim from Radio. I can go ahead and, and answer that um, just from my viewpoint. So with doing a lot of fees, there's definitely utility to both the fees and with the MBS. And I think we would all agree that in an ideal world, we would have both and we would use both in both pieces of information. The fees has been really helpful from one, looking from a structural standpoint and at the upper airway, how the vocal folds are moving, but also because, especially with our babies, how sensitive they are to changes and positioning. It's really helpful to see what their response is when they're initiating their swallow. So although a fees is looking at a lot of where, other than the structures and where the bolus is flowing, you can't, you make a lot of assumptions based on what the true physiology of the swallow is. And that's where the the MBS is gonna be helpful where you can look at true laryngeal elevation, you can look at stripping, you can look at true tongue-based retraction and piece it apart more to understand if 
what level of airway protection are they breaking down? Is it their approximation of arytenoids to epiglottic pedial? If, are they closing their entire laryngeal vestibule? You're not going to be able to see all of that in a fees. You're, you're making more inferences. But the utility right. of it has been with positioning, with especially with our cardiac babies, they're really responsive to bolus flow changes and positioning changes and pacing changes. And by being able to see instead of just a unilateral view, you can see where that's pulling on both sides. You can see if a baby is going to be fed in an upright position and they are initiating their swallow in the piriform sinuses. If you then put that baby in, even though we say, okay, put them in side lying, if they have a really delayed swallow, that is more volume that's then being initiated in one piriform sinus that's going to be able, that might spill over into their airway. And so I find, I have found that it's really helpful in being able to implement a lot of the strategies that, that we know have been helpful in them. And then if we really are having trouble and we say, okay, we, we, we see residue and we're seeing little bits of aspiration and we see continued short suck bursts and everything looks fine, of course, we want to use MBS to supplement and we're, we're not being blind of saying, oh, this is a perfect swallow, but it's really the response to strategies. I, I think, honestly, Kim put it so eloquently, that was probably one of the most beautiful explanations I've ever heard, yes. <laughs> quite honestly. Yeah, seriously, um, well done. That was beautiful. Yeah, a very soothing voice too. I really love it. Um, you know, we, like I said, we do more swallow studies um, than fees. So it's helpful, especially when it comes to infants. I mean, we can see with a swallow study from a lateral view, you can see the oral, pharyngeal and cervical esophageal stages, which is nice. So you're not really making any inferences about kind of like that moment of the swallow. Um, you know, and I, I don't feel qualified in any capacity to really weigh in very much on any sort of esophageal dysfunction. Um, but it is sometimes helpful, especially with some of these infants who really do struggle with motility. Um, it, you know, it helps me just kind of add another observation to my toolbox to say, Hey, you know, there was something kind of interesting here you know, you might want to consult the radiologist and see if maybe some more testing is warranted in terms of the esophageal stage of their swallow. Um, what is also really helpful, and I think Kim did kind of touch on this, is the fact that especially for infants, that oral phase of the swallow is very important. Um, you, you know, that oral swallowing phase definitely is going to impact a lot of what we see in terms of their coordination. Um, so being able to actually see what's going on helps. Um, and especially if we're looking at not just the actual swallow physiology, but kind of everything leading up to it. Uh, are we using the correct type of flow rate when it comes to their bottle? I mean, are we seeing them fatigue themselves because they're having to suck a lot more per swallow? Um, so it's, you know, it's little things like that, that actually do kind of help make the modified a pretty good indicator for type of exam that we want to use for our babies. Um, to add on top of that, very similar to uh, what Janan was saying, um, Texas Children's, we tend to use a lot of thickening with our babies, if appropriate, for um, post-swallow study only. Let me add that. Um, and that has been 
something that we are only using gel mix to thicken, and that is impossible to thicken and have ready for a fees. It is possible, but it is very difficult to get it ready for a fees to be able to make those viscosity changes if needs be. So that's been one of the benefits of using video fluoroscopic swallow studies is being able to have those uh, viscosities ready so we can assess them if needs be. Um, okay, so I have another big question coming up for you. So after assessment, how do you move forward with swallow therapy? Uh, when do you repeat assessment? How often and for how long? Oh, that was a doozy. <laughs> Go for it. I love watching, no, I love hearing Kim start first, actually. I just build off of her. <laughs> she just puts everything so eloquently. I love it. Sorry, Kim, didn't mean to put you on the spot. No, that's okay. That's okay. Um, I can start. So I think I'm confused a little bit by the question, but I'll do my best. So you you let me know if, you, if I need to add more. Let's see, should I reword it differently, Julian? So I think the confusion, you talk a lot about swallow therapy. Is that maybe, um, is that maybe where the confusion is? Um, maybe. So, I th so I think that when I think about determining frequency, like moving forward with swallowing therapy, so determining frequency, we, we see most of, at least inpatient, we see most of the patients and we will reduce frequency and just monitor them if we feel like swallow function is okay, their endurance is okay, they're gaining weight and we'll touch base more with them occasionally seeing a feed. If we, if they're, if it's intake based and whether it's intake or whether, so you say now I'm speak, I speak so eloquently. Now I'm, try, I'm trying to wrap my head around what exactly, what we're I'm trying so to, sorry. to answer here. No, that's okay. You're doing great. I love it. It's completely fine. So if for all of our babies, if we're concerned about them and we, the biggest thing from an instrumental, we just talked about it at length. What do you get out of the information? Are they aspirating? Of course, we would like to know that, but more importantly, what is their swallow function and what can we do about it, right? So regardless of moving forward, we should know from the bedside assessment or the instrumental, what are we gonna do? What can I change and what can I not change? What am I implementing that's gonna be compensatory in nature? What am I allowing time for? And so we wanna give them first practice. We wanna challenge that, create a plan where even if they're aspirating and we think that they're not going to move on to being full oral feeders right now, making sure that we give them opportunity to be practicing oral feeding. And that's a multidisciplinary decision of how do you minimize that level of aspiration and how can we have that baby practicing throughout the day outside of therapy? To me, that's the biggest thing that we can do to help move their entire system along is letting them practice outside of therapy and putting conditions along that. And then I look at therapy as the moments where we might be challenging their system a little bit more, not, of course, we're going off their cues and we're, but saying, okay, we know that this size bolus you can handle. We're going to monitor your ability to continue weaning from respiratory support. But at these Times we're going to challenge you and say, okay, can you handle these different techniques and try some different things together? And then as you get closer to, I think that one of the biggest roles of 
of the feeding team is saying, okay, when is it time to take the next step and say, okay, this baby's getting close. Maybe we pull the NG tube, right? It's not just about swallow function. It's optimizing time, timing of when are we going to allow them to kind of fly if it, if it might be time instead of just assuming that it's this volume that they're not taking and they're not going to be able to do it. So that's uh, exactly what we were looking for. That's an awesome answer. And then I think one other thing that I would add is really making sure what happens next. What happens when that baby is going home? If they are tube fed, who's owning that tube? How are they going to, how are we really working with the family to make sure that they know that they're not alone when they leave? How are they going to be supported? Does the family feel confident? And that is one of the biggest things we need to do. We can do all the most beautiful feeding therapy and I can get this baby looking beautiful and look at their nears and look at their physiologic stability when I do all these monkey tricks and pacing at this exact time and the positioning is beautiful. But if that mom or dad does not feel comfortable, it doesn't matter, right? They're going to go home and the baby is not going to do well. So really making sure that we spend the time educating the family and that there's a follow-up plan outpatient. You know, Kim, to, to bounce on top of that, this is Hallie with TCH. Um, I always tell parents, I'm not going to be with you at three in the morning when you're feeding your child. And so from the moment I meet the parents, they're hands on, whether it be just doing pacifier dips, whether it be they're running the little tiny little one drop syringe at the corner of the baby's lips while they're sucking on the pacifier, just giving them something to make them involved with the therapy, to empower them to also be their child's therapist so that they can facilitate growth as they go home. Um, I just had lost my train of thought for that. Oh, one thing that's a little bit different at TCH is we, we tend to be more conservative in some things and more liberal in other things, but our con conservative approach is a lot of our patients in the immediate post-operative period or our, our more risky patients pre-operatively, we um, keep PO in therapy only. Um, and so we keep them practicing with therapeutic feeders. And that is one benefit of having another um, discipline working with us also doing feeding um, so that they can get multiple feeds a day with a trained therapeutic feeder. Um, and then as they start showing that they're safe or making more progress, then we will open it up to parents feeding alongside therapists because we are firm believers in the parents also being therapists. And then as the parents get more comfortable or let's say the parents aren't as available, we open it up to nursing staff to also feed the baby. Um, this is Janan from Dell. Um, you know, all of those are kind of approaches that we tend to utilize. I think moving forward with therapy, really, it, it really depends. There are so many clinical factors that go into it. And also looking at the, the entire social picture as well. Um, it's, you know, how we move forward with therapy aside from their actual swallow physiology is completely dependent on um, what is their social, social disposition is, you know, are their caregivers at bedside? Um, how complex is, is the feeding situation? Um, cause there are some patients who, you know, they're, we can liberalize a little bit, um, of the feeding depend, you know, depending on what their needs are. Uh, but, 
if it's something that's really, really complex and they're very much at risk, um, you know, for any sort of cardiopulmonary compromise, then we tend to have to kind of err on the conservative side. Um, so it, you know, it, there really are so many factors. And I think, again, we always go back to one of the biggest things is what, what is the overall goal for feeding of this patient? You know, am I doing the swallow study to figure out what they can do therapeutically because they're a patient who just has had poor exposure to feeding since they have been really sick. And then by the time they had surgery, they were weaning off of narcotics. And so they had a really hard time with state regulation. Um, so am I trying to, you know, are they about ready to go home from like a medical stability standpoint? And now we have to figure out like, kind of like Kim said, who's going to own their feeding once they leave. Do I need to come up with like what they can do therapeutically once they leave to start to kind of build up their feeding skills? Um, am I trying to wean them from a tube? Like, you know, what, am, what is the overall goal for their feeding here? Um, and what are some of the other factors involved within the entire big picture of their admission and then the overall like discharge disposition. So it gets pretty complex. There's a, it's, it's nuanced. For sure. Thank you guys. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well said. I appreciate that. So it seems like um, we have actually, like you guys were so awesome and moved forward to mm-hmm. like, how do you advance feeding therapy? How do you make decisions about advancing? All that made so much sense. Um, are we, can we move forward? Absolutely. Okay, cool. All right. So this is the fun question. <laughs> so, um, so uh, this is in part because for people who are listening, we might have some students listening. Um, and so wanted to talk about in this population, um, we often worry about vagal nerve damage or um, how that's affecting feeding. And so I was just hoping to get you all um, to explain, first of all, how do you assess the vagus nerve when you're, um, the vagal nerve function when you're working with um, a pediatric population? And then also, why does that matter? How does vagal nerve damage impact feeding for those that that maybe don't know? <laughs> I'm like, who, who wants to start? Yeah, rock, paper, scissors. <laughs> um, I mean, so, you know, as far as vagal nerve damage, we know that depending on the patient's overall kind of like anatomy, um, as well as surgical intervention, patients are in this population tend to kind of be at risk for some sort of insult um, to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, um, which can impact breathing, voicing, swallowing. so I think it, you know, as far as assessment goes, I tend to do a lot of perceptual um, voice assessments. And, you know, in, if I go see a patient after they've had surgery and they are maybe dysphonic, you know, that's, that's kind of like a red flag for me um, where I'll talk to the medical team and I'll say, hey, do you guys mind getting ENT involved and seeing if, you know, there's more damage than what I'm hearing, right? Because I can't really do much until I know exactly what's going on. Um, So that being said, I'm not the one who's doing like a a true assessment of vocal fold pathology per se, but I'm definitely using my own skills and perceptual voice assessment to kind of figure out what needs to happen next. Um, And then 
what you know whether or not there is some sort of vocal fold immobility will kind of help drive my interventions for positioning um, the patient. Um, but it you know it should definitely be noted that having any sort of vocal fold immobility is not a direct correlation to aspiration, um, but it can help definitely drive how you utilize your interventions. So I was going to say, when I go in and do my assessment, um, I'm looking at the, the surgery that has been done or possible length of intubation or utilization of VA ECMO um, for my patients, because we know that those patients that have surgeries that involve with the that are involved with the aorta are at higher risk um, for having recurrent laryngeal nerve damage. Um, uh, so for my patients, when I go in, I'm doing a perceptual voice assessment. I'm listening to their cry. I'm listening to their, looking at their breathing. Are they having issues weaning from their respiratory support um, in conjunction with those surgeries? And then um Based off of that, like Janan said, I'll do my different interventions, moving to sideline or, or positioning or um, for our, in our facility, if we suspect any vocal fold um, involvement, we request a vocal fold ultrasound or a laryngeal ultrasound. Um, and that's an ultrasound to be able to look at the vocal fold movement versus a scope. Um, and that comes back within 24 hours and they can give us which side has any involvement if there is anything noted. And then if that is the case, then we um, get ENT in and they will come in scope at the bedside as well. Interesting. Why do you guys start with the ultrasound over just starting with the scope? Less invasive. So our cardiac teams prefer, prefer to um, have the least, least invasive thing first. Hmm. Do they come to the bedside or they go down to radiology? They go to the bedside. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And this is Kim from Reedy. I can, I agree with both of what you're saying. Um, I guess what I can add to that is when I'm thinking, I of course look at what surgery was done, intubation, but when I'm looking clinically, so many of our patients have that post-op congestion. And one of the first things that I'm listening to is of course their cry, but then their cough as well and their ability to, to clear some of that out. Um, and it's always in the back of my mind of, is there any type of pathology there? But I wouldn't say that it's dictating what I do clinically. We're, I'm still looking at how the patient's behaving, what their arousal level is. Are they truly weaning respiratory support? We will do a fees much earlier and it will still be a fees, even if we're not orally feeding them, we'll still look at secretion management, ENT, and the feeding team generally will, they rarely come and scope without doing a fees because we have found that even with non-nutritive sucking, we can get some good information at looking at what the difference is and how they're managing their secretions and positioning and um, stimulation of a cough, even if they are um, pulling some of those secretions. And so looking at their voice, looking at their, their cough reflex and when the, but then still moving forward, even if we're concerned with conservative feeds. And so it's really difficult differentially after cardiac surgery to know what is post-op 
just changes to your voice when you've been intubated. And we usually give it a few days to say, okay, are we starting to see improvement in the quality of your voice? And when you're weaning support and they're coming to more is, are we able to progress feeds more? Is it coordination based? Is it, are they, do they seem to be struggling just because of arousal? And so once the baby starts declaring themselves more with all the strategies in place, and we're starting to see some of those signs, whether um, it's a breathy voice or a weaker cough, then then we'll go ahead and and we'll scope and do a more invasive fuse. Not invasive. That sounds awful, right? Invasive <laughs> and invasive. <laughs> we'll do a more thorough fuse with oral feed. Yeah. Can I ask? Just going oh, sorry, off. Go that, oh, sorry. I want to um, just ask really quickly. Do you? approach, I love that you're basing um, your decision-making off of how the infant, the individual infant is presenting. And as you said, declaring themselves, do you approach that differently in a cardiac population, you know, that has risk for silent aspiration, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to a different population? Do you, are you more conservative or less conservative in this population? Um, so I'll continue just for a second, um, just my mind, my frame of mind is there from what I just left off with. But I would say yes, in general, because we're thinking about, could that have been an area of, of involvement? And then, but when we're, when it's more in terms of when they're on higher respiratory supports is what I look at. I think that clinically you're, you're going to see the same indicators and, perception of what their, their vocal quality is, but in a baby that you don't, you're not picking up on those things and they're not showing lots of signs that there is that involvement. We're not, we don't just assume that there's no involvement. And so if that baby's on higher respiratory support after an arch repair and we're getting ready, they're cueing and we want them to be orally feeding. We want to give them the opportunity, but we know it's still a risky zone. We start with a much slower nipple. Um, a lot of times we use an ultra preemie nipple and we at Rady, we have, we get orders again, as soon as they have surgery, we put in a pre-feeding plan post extubation. So that way it's not just default to whatever they were on before, because we aren't always the ones that start the oral feeding. In an ideal world, we would want to be the ones that would be right there. But in reality, sometimes that's holding them back. If a therapist isn't available and that baby's cueing and they're actively weaning respiratory support, you might be missing windows of opportunity. And so we look at it as a team of saying, okay, what would be an appropriate way for this patient to get started knowing that there could be vocal fold involvement, knowing they're weaning respiratory support. And so we'll start with a certain volume and a certain flow with all the strategies that we know. If they're able to continue weaning and tolerating feeds, then we advance over like the next several feeds and then open them up. So we do take it differently from that standpoint. Um, This is Janan from Dell. Yeah, I mean, I I think that that question is a bit complex. So I guess I kind of want to clarify, Um, you know, there's a lot of clinical assessment that goes into seeing these patients, right? I am a lot like, you know, what Kim was saying was that 
you there's more pieces to that puzzle as a whole. Um, and so basically, you know, of course, we're always going to be assessing starting from kind of a bottom-up approach. We're going to look at their respiratory stability, uh, where they are in terms of the respiratory support, um, what their non-nutritive skills look like. And so when I say non-nutritive, you know, I'm just looking at their overall oral modal uh, oral motor skills. Um, what are my oral motor skills? Wow. Um, and then we're looking at, you know, what they do with a pacifier. So that's, these are all things that we're doing when we're not actively trying to feed them. So we're looking at that assessment. We're looking at their state regulation, how they tolerate handling, um, think just little things like that. Um, and then once we do get to a certain point and we aren't seeing any change in their voicing. So that's after considering maybe that there has been, you know, if there was post-extubation trauma or edema, like maybe that's gone down, patients starting to kind of wean off respiratory support. But if we are still seeing, you know, or I guess perceiving some decrease in their vocal functioning, um, and we're looking at, of course, like what type of surgery they had, then we will have ENT involved and you know, looking at their actual vocal folds. And so when I say driving intervention, it's more of like, those are all things that I kind of keep in the back of my mind for when I do get to actually start nutritively feeding them, right? Because if I know that a patient has um, vocal fold paralysis, I can feed feed them on the opposite side when I position them in sideline to kind of look at, you know, how they tolerate that. And then once I do go for an instrumental, if I have to go for an instrumental, that is how I assess them to kind of see what they look like. And if that's an intervention, that's helping. So those are all just kind of considerations that we definitely keep in the back of our minds as we're doing assessments. There are so many moving parts to it uh -huh. that, and as I'm talking about it out loud now, I realize just how complex it is. Yeah. And what I was just going to add to that is I realized we're talking so much because we had just been speaking about vocal fold immobility, but if we broaden it back out and look at it from the question of, okay, are we, I think the question was, do we change what we're doing with patients who have a cardiac diagnosis? Oh my gosh. That, yeah, that was but if you, <laughs> if you look at it from there and we're so many of our, of our cardiac babies and cardiac patients, it's not the swallow function that's making them poor feeders right? They have really poor endurance. They cannot slow their respiration. Their gut perfusion is poor. And one of the biggest things that I look, whether it's preoperative, postoperative, not operative, whatever they, whatever the patient's physiology is and medical management is, I really look to the cardiac team to say, okay, what is their stability? What can this patient handle? I can make them safe, okay, but what, how, how can I tax their system? Should I tax their system at all? Should we just keep them in non-nutritive sucking, even if they could be safe? What is the best thing globally for this patient? Yes, I mean, I definitely agree with everything Kim just said. There is so much more to it than just the swallow. Um, that is an excellent point. I have nothing to add because both of those responses were just absolutely gorgeous. No, we should write a book. I know. <laughs> seriously, next step. I gotta incredible. say guys, you like, guys are absolutely incredible. And um, thanks again for taking the time and uh, everybody have a good night. You too, too. thank you so much. much. Lovely speaking Bye. to you all. Bye. Thank you, have a great Bye. night. Bye. Bye.
I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. To stay up to date with everything Sentac is doing, follow us on social media, Twitter at Sentac1 and Facebook and Instagram at ENT Kids. If you missed it, go to our Instagram page to watch Dr. Safina Karani share a day in the life of a pediatric otolaryngologist from Dubai. The dates have been announced for this year's annual meeting and will be November 30 to December 2nd in Charleston, South Carolina. Don't forget to update your member profile on the Sentac webpage. The deadline is today, February 22nd. Thanks again for listening to this episode. <laughs>